following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So every now and then, we have as a church taken a group from our church on a study tour in Israel. And um, there, there's, we, we take a group and we go to these sites that are significant in the Bible or specifically in the story of Jesus um, and his ministry. And one of the sites that any Christian study tour in Israel stops at is the Jordan River. Because the Jordan River, it's just one of the most significant locations all through the Bible. I mean, it's where um, the, the nation of Israel, they cross the Jordan when they're, after they're wandering to go into the promised land. It's, it's um, the place where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. It's where um, John was shocked when Jesus said, would you baptize me? And so um, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. And so there's this one particular place where you can go and actually be baptized in the Jordan, and there's this really moving thing that just in that, in that place is that when you get there, there are people from all over the world that have gathered for the same reason, and just that in of itself is kind of moving. So there's us, we're like the South, there's a South Florida group, you know, that we're there, and, and um, people are getting baptized in this Jordan River, and then there's people from another part of uh, the United States, and then there's people from a, a country in Asia, and a people, people from a country in Africa, and from all over the world have come to this one spot for the same reason. In fact, sometimes groups will start singing, a group next to you might start singing in their native language, but you, very, you, you recognize the song because you know the tune, and then there's two groups that will never see each other again, but they're singing the same song in two different languages, and it just can be this really powerful moment. But if you kind of just step out of that kind of powerful moment for a second and just look at the logistics that's happening, it's actually a little strange. Because people have come all over the world to get plunged into this river. And the river itself, if you, if you look at it, for starters, especially by South Florida standards, it's freezing, it's water that's coming down from like the mountains, and it's cold. I mean, the Icelandic group over here is in heaven, okay? The South Florida group is, you know, freezing cold. Okay, so it's cold, but it's also not like this beautiful, clear, babbling brook, okay? It is murky. It's dirty, very murky. I mean, like, opaque, okay? It's dirty. And so people come all over the world to this murky, dirty, freezing cold river to be then plunged under the water and brought back up. And think about it for a second. Like baptism, this symbol, this thing that Christians do and have done all throughout history, I mean, it's kind of a strange thing. It's like people are, are, are taken and we're, we drop them under the water. I mean, why don't we just line them up and just get a fire hose and just spray them all down? It'd be much more efficient. I mean, and maybe if you're here and you say, look, I, I don't come from a church background or um, maybe this is the first time you've ever been to a church, you can probably relate to this. This, uh, this idea of dunking someone under the water, it, it's kind of a strange thing that Christians have done throughout history. But the, the symbolism, it's a very simple symbol that's very powerful and in very easy terms 
explains the core nuance of what Christians believe, which is why Jesus commanded all Christians to be baptized, to participate in this very simple symbol. It explains the logic of the Christian faith very easily. And you might be here and, and you might say, look, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. Maybe you're here and you say, look, I, I don't know that I'm there. And maybe you would identify with some of the common obstacles that people have towards the Christian faith. Like there are some that say, okay, I understand Jesus, I respect Jesus, but for me to like start following the Christian faith, like the idea of all those rules, I mean, it just kind of feels like a straitjacket. It just feels really confining. And there's a lot of people that that's the obstacle. Like I, I identify with a lot about Christianity, but that just, it just seems so confining. It seems like all the things that make my life lively and worth living, like it's taking those things away. There are others that say, look, I, I love Jesus, but just the idea of organized religion, I, I'm just not into that. And for some, like that's one of the main obstacles for following Jesus and, uh, and pushing into who is this person of Jesus. Others would say, very honestly, they might say, look, I, I, I respect Jesus, but I've had some really bad experiences with Christians. Or I've had some bad experiences with the church. Like I've just seen, like I've heard what Christians believe and then I've seen how they live. Like maybe some, there are some that would say, look, the, some of the most difficult people I work with are people who claim to be Christians. How can they say they believe this and act like this. And, and first of all, if, if that is in particular your objection or the obstacle for you to, to become a Christian or to follow Jesus or explore who he is, first of all, I want to say if you're here or you're joining us online and that's your obstacle, that took a lot of courage to be joining us today. And so I want to say how much I admire that. And secondly, would say, look, we're sorry if you if you've felt hurt by a Christian or a church at some point in your life. And even though that might not have involved us, I want you to hear, from our church at least, I want you to hear that that grieves Jesus' heart. But here's what I, I, would, I would say in response. If one of those three is an obstacle or a barrier, or you've tempted to feel that before, it may be that how Christianity has been explained to you or displayed to you before actually misunderstands the core nuance, the core message of Christianity called the gospel. And so what I'd like to show you is a passage in the book of Romans that addresses this core nuance of the gospel that's so powerful and is actually displayed in this simple symbol of baptism. Through this Faith and Logic series, we've been looking at the beginning of Romans, and we're going to look at Romans chapter 6 today, and we're going to look at the logic of Christianity. What's the logic of the gospel that we put our faith into? So check this out. Romans chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 1. Romans chapter 6, we're going to take a look at verse 1. This is a letter. The book of Romans is actually a letter to people in Rome from a guy named Paul. And here's what he says. Let's just look at this first verse. He asks this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin 
that grace may abound? Now, this is an interesting question. Let's just not move past this too quickly. He's saying, essentially, he's anticipating a question that they might be asking at this point in his argument, this point in his letter. He's been explaining this core belief of Christianity, the gospel. He's been explaining the belief about Jesus, the gospel. And as he's navigating through this, he's anticipating a question that his readers are most likely asking. He's anticipating that along the way from what he said, they are going to be asking this question. So he writes, essentially, wait a minute, Paul, what are you saying? And this is the question he's anticipating that they're kind of their reflexes to ask. Wait, Paul, are you saying that we should sin even more? Now that's kind of an odd question. Like, what could he have possibly explained about the Christian faith that at this point would make them want to ask that question? I mean, it's not really what you'd expect. Okay, let's put it like this. Imagine that you're on vacation and you're at a resort and you're there to just uh, hang out by the pool or, or go down to the beach or whatever it is. But while you're there, let's say that there's a health and wellness convention happening. And in all these conference rooms, there's these breakout sessions about training exercise or diet or whatever it is. And as you're walking to the pool, you're walking through this, ha- this hallway and there's these little rooms where all these workshops are happening and you see up ahead, there's a sign for a workshop in progress that says secrets to healthy dieting. And as you walk by that door, someone's exiting and they're, so they push open the door and you overhear that they're at the question and answer portion at the end of the presenter's presentation about healthy dieting. And the, the person asks you, all you hear is the question, and the person says, wait a minute, are you saying that we should eat as much bacon and pizza as we possibly can? And then the door closes. Now what could that presenter have possibly said in describing the secrets to healthy dieting that would lead someone in the audience to ask a question like that, okay? Now, you didn't get a chance to hear the answer from the presenter, so you don't know, but what you can at least say is, okay, they're saying something pretty different than what most dietitians say. I mean, that's something pretty unique if that is at least the question, even if that person completely misunderstood the presentation, obviously there's something different that this person is saying. Okay, we just basically caught Paul in the middle of his argument, and, the, and he knows the reader is asking this question. Wait, Paul, are you saying that we should sin even more? So what could he have possibly said up to this point that would cause them to ask that question, okay? Here's what he literally says. He says, shall we, so what are we saying? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? So let's define these terms as Paul has already described them in the first five chapters leading up to chapter six, verse one, which we just read. Let's look at this first term. He he says, sin. Now he's already described this and we talked about this Um, In the last couple weeks, Pastor Justin talked about this last week. Sin is essentially the wickedness 
that is in or the evil that all of us have in our hearts. The Romans has already said all of us have sin in our hearts. And it's given examples of sin by saying things like sin is like the envy or the jealousy that comes out. Just as to give one example, envy or jealousy that comes out in our lives. Now, envy and jealousy is something that every one of us has experienced at some point. I mean, that's just part of the human experience. But think about envy for a second. There is nothing redeemable about envy. Like, if you've ever felt jealousy or envy towards someone, that is just a gnawing, just terrible feeling in your gut. And think about what envy does to you. It immediately makes you unsatisfied with what you have. So you miss all the joy of enjoying all the blessings that you actually have. I mean, it just strips you of your contentment and leaves you miserable. And it completely erodes that relationship you have with that person because you're mad that they have it and you feel like you deserve it. So you're unhappy and angry at that person even though they've done nothing to you because of jealousy. I mean, jealousy leaves you stripped of your contentment completely dissatisfied with your life. That's, it leaves you to wallow in that. I mean, envy and jealousy is terrible. But think of the effect that someone's envy and jealousy has on their loved ones around them. It can make friends, family members feel not good enough because they're so discontent with their current life. And if someone who you love is really dealing with jealousy and envy and discontentment, it can cause hurt between that person and you. But even being the object of gen jealousy and envy, man, that's miserable too. Have you ever had someone that you found out was jealous of you and that's why they're trying to tear you down behind your back? That's why they're so rude to you or cold to you or mean to you? I mean, jealousy and envy, a 360 degrees, is just something that destroys and tears down. That's what he's describing. He gives us one example of many others, things like selfishness and gossip and greed. I mean, all of these things. Sin is that evil and wickedness in our hearts that all of us have that it just tears us down and leaves us broken and tears down the relationships around us. He describes sin like this. If we were to read ahead in Romans chapter 6, he gives a really succinct definition of what he means by sin. Here's what he says in Romans 6 Verse 23, he says it like this, for the wages of sin is death. In other words, what he's saying is sin wears us down, drags us down to death. In other words, every single one of us, the punishment for sin, the end result of the sin in our lives is an eternity away from God in hell. Every human has sin and we're facing an eternity in hell which is a very bleak picture. But that's not the end of the verse, is it? Here's where he describes what grace is. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the unique message of Jesus Christ. 
that every one of us, even though we have this destructive sin in our hearts, and that all of us are facing the end result of our sin, which is an eternity in hell, death itself, that Jesus Christ, that God looks down and says, no, I'm offering you a free gift. Salvation is free. It can't be purchased. It can't be earned. It can't be traded for. It can't be bartered for. Salvation from sin and from death is offered for free just to be accepted. So how does God do that? How does he just offer us salvation? He does it through Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. The God-man Jesus who came to earth and he was crucified on a cross. Picture the scene. Nails driven through his wrists, blood spurting and dripping down his arms as he's fixed to this crossbar. His face is swollen because he's been beaten. He's got a, a crown of thorns pressed down on his scalp, blood dripping down. He's probably almost unrecognizable. His entire back has been whipped. There's ribbons of flesh just ripped off of his back. He's probably nearly dead simply from the shock and blood loss of how he's been whipped. And then his, his feet are nailed to the cross as well. And just imagine the violent, grisly picture of a maimed body hanging on the cross. It's God in the flesh taking our sin on himself and modeling, showing what sin itself does. It destroys. God loves us. He takes all of our sin on himself. He dies on the cross. And because it's God in the flesh, the infinite God dying on the cross, he can pay for all of our sins past, present, and future, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead, fully paying for all of our sins and offering each who put their faith in Jesus permanent forgiveness for your sins, past, present, and future. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are living in perpetual, a perpetual state of forgiveness. That's what grace is. The second term, grace, one of the most profound illustrations of grace, um, if you've been around West Pines, you've, you've probably heard me use this illustration before. I heard a, a pastor from the Philippines describe grace like this. Imagine a man in a, a, a village is going through the jungle, kind of exploring, and he comes across just outside of his village and in the ground, kind of under some leaves, he sees a glint of something and he pulls up this strange rock. It's just caked in dirt and leaves and debris. And so he takes it down to the river and he puts it in the river and the river kind of washes and he starts washing off all the dirt and the debris and he holds it up and the sun hits it and he realizes it's a ginormous, precious gemstone. And with all the dirt washed off it, it's just brilliant and gleaming and he can't believe it. It's an extraordinary treasure. And so he takes this gemstone and he knows he can't take it back to his village. He's afraid it might get stolen. And so he hides it back in the jungle and he buries it again. And every day he comes back out, un uncovers the gemstone and, and it's caked in dirt again and he washes it off in the river until it's gleaming and he just beholds it and then buries it again. And he does this every single day and finally he gets tired of constantly coming out and washing off the gemstone. 
And so what he does is he takes the gemstone and he he uncovers it and he takes it to the river. And this time he takes the gemstone and follows the river upstream until he gets to a waterfall. And he gets to the waterfall and he takes the gemstone and he fixes it in the wall on the waterfall. And the water is just constantly running over the gem now. And so now every day he can come and any time a piece of debris passes by the gem, it's immediately washed off because it's under the waterfall perpetually. That's what grace is. See, so often what religion teaches is that we uncover, our, uh, un- the gem is like our souls. And as we're walking around, we get dirty. And so we have our religion to help us get clean again. And so maybe it's, I, I've done something the gods don't want me to do, so I make a sacrifice to the gods. Or maybe there's something that violated an, an ethical command from uh, the, the religion that I follow. And so now I, I have to go pay some kind of alms or something. Or, or maybe I have to then go to a priest and, and pay penance. Or maybe, well, now i got to dig in and, and just be a good Christian and go to church a lot and pray a little bit more because I've gotten dirty again and then I have to get clean. And religion is this constant, I, I've gotten myself dirty, how do I get clean? I'm dirty and get clean. I get dirty, I get clean. It's back and forth, back and forth. But grace is something fundamentally different. It's the idea that his mercies are new every morning. His forgiveness is perpetual. It's like we are constantly under the waterfall of his forgiveness and grace, perpetually washing us clean. That's the power of what Jesus did to pay for our sins once and for all on the cross. You are in a state of forgiveness if you've put your faith in Jesus. So you're saying, wait a minute, time out. Does that mean that like God just kind of like wrote me a blank check? I mean, it kind of sounds like God just gave me a sin gift card. Because if I can, if I'm constantly perpetually forgiven, then I can just go like use that sin gift card because I'll constantly be forgiven. Okay, if you're asking that question, that means you're following the logic thus far for the the logic of the message because that's the question Paul knows is going to reflexively come up into our minds. He says, wait a minute, Paul, what are you saying? Are you saying we should sin even more so that grace can increase? Look what he says. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 2. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, this is what Paul's saying. Man, you might be wondering, man, Paul, are you saying I can just do whatever I want and God's going to forgive me? Like, should I just sin even more? And he's saying, man, good for you. You're tracking with the logic. Here's the answer. Please don't do that. Absolutely don't do that. Please. And by no means. And you say, okay, well, I'm confused then. He says, I thought the, the, the gospel gave a different kind of logic. And it does. See, there's something fundamentally happening different in the gospel. And I think one of the cleanest ways that I've seen this explained, the nuance of the gospel is by a a pastor 
and author by the name of Tim Keller. And he, he writes the nuanced difference between the gospel and religion. Here's what he says. He says, this is what religion is. He says, religion is this formula. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's every religion, right? You want to be accepted by God? You want, his, you want him to welcome you into heaven? Or paradise or nirvana, whatever the, the framework is. You want to be welcomed in there? You want to be accepted by God? You want his favor on you, his blessing? You want him to be for you? You want him to be happy with you, not mad at you, behind you in what you do? If you want to be accepted by God, the religious paradigm is obey and you'll get that. If you want his acceptance, then do the religious duties that you're supposed to do, do those activities, be obedient, make sure you don't do the thou shalt nots of whatever the religion is. And if you do those things accurately, if you obey, you will get his acceptance. But Paul is turning it and showing that the gospel, the message of Jesus, is the exact opposite. Here's what the gospel says. I am accepted, therefore I obey. It's that Jesus, that God looks down and loved us while we were still sinners. It's that he accepted us first even though we're messed up. It's that God looked down on the world and says, I, I love this world. And so he sends his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He loves us even though, first and foremost, he loves us even though we were sinners. And when we realize that love and accept what he did on the cross through Jesus, that drives us to obey. Why does that drive us to obey? And he uses that illustration of baptism. He says, because think about baptism. Christian, remember your baptism? It's that symbol. You were placed under, why are they, we placed under water? We go under the water and back up. Do you know what that's a symbol of? Burial. It's saying, my old life, the sin in my life, the envy and jealousy and, and selfishness and pride and greed, all of that stuff that was messing up my life and my relationships, all of that was nailed to the cross. It died with Jesus. I was buried with Jesus and now I've raised into a brand new life, saved from sin. He says, Christian, if you've been baptized, you know sin. What did it lead to? It leads to death. He says, Christian, you, you know what took place on the cross. You know the grisly, violent, brutal, maimed body hanging on the cross as a picture of where sin takes you. So you know sin is not your friend. He says, you know, why then if you know that sin was something that Christ died for you for and you were dead with Christ and raised to life, if you've been raised out of that, how could you possibly consider going back to sin? So can you imagine someone who's been a cancer survivor, absolutely 100% cancer free, Doctor releases them, says, you're fine now. Can you imagine that person just deciding to show back up to the hospital for more chemo treatments? Like, why would they keep sending that toxin through their body? It, they've been freed from it. 
Can you imagine a refugee from a tyrannical, oppressive, terrorizing government fleeing into a, into a free country, finally getting to a free country, kissing the ground when they get off the boat or the airplane, and they finally kiss the ground, and then cowering in their home like they're still under the oppression? Be free. Can you imagine someone in a concentration camp in the Holocaust when the Allies finally sweep through and they open the cell door and they say, you're free from this terror and this horror. Can you imagine someone saying, no, I'm going to stay in this prison cell? Saying, come out of the cell. Christian, why would we no longer sin? Has God given us a, 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 a free pass to sin? Christian, if you've seen what sin does, you know it is not your friend. It is destroying you and your relationships. You have been saved out of it. How could we possibly imagine going back to sin? In Christ, you have been freed, not free to sin. You've been freed from sin. How could you ever go back? Remember your baptism, Christian. That powerful symbol where you're like, man, that is the old me. It is dead and buried and I'm in a new, brand new life in Jesus Christ. Never to return to that sin. Live in that new life. Now maybe you're here and you're like, man, I, I, my, my objection is that Christianity just, it seems confining like a straitjacket. Can you rethink about what you're saying gives freedom to your life? Is it possible that you're deceived? You know, there's a, a type of brain tumor that, especially if it's in the frontal region of the brain, as it grows, it can augment someone's personality and even affect their judgment. And so sometimes friends and family are confused, like, why is this person suddenly acting so different? Like, their personality's been completely changed. And as they start to get worried about the person, they may try and bring that, hey, are you okay? Maybe you should go get checked out. I mean, something, it seems like you're, something's changed about you. And the, the difficult part of that particular type of brain tumor is the more that the tumor grows and the more the person's judgment is affected, often the, least, the less receptive they are to going and getting help. This, Romans describes sin very much the same way. Sin deceives us. And the more sin grows in our hearts, the more, we're re, we're, the, the more we accept it as normal and the less receptive we are to being transformed. And so maybe the very things that you're like, no, I don't want to let go of this and follow Jesus. Could it be that is the very thing that's killing you right now? You say, no, I don't, don't tell me how to handle my resources and my money, but what if it is greed that is destroying you and your relationships? What if it's greed that is driving you to work more hours than is healthy for you emotionally, physically, and spiritually? What if it's, it's stealing that greed that's driving you to work and be a workaholic and it's stealing from you the relationships that you know and love the most with your family and your children and your spouse and your friends? 
And what if it's the very thing that's drawing you in and then it's going to fail you at the end? You've been freed from greed. You say, no, I want to have freedom. Like, don't restrict me with the sexual ethics of Christianity. But can you just consider for a second, could it be that lust itself is what's stealing from you the very thing down in the recesses of your soul that you actually want the most? It's stealing from you the deep intimacy and joy of sharing that kind of vulnerability with one person. It's actually stealing it from you while all the time telling you that you have freedom. It's actually having as you as its captive. Be free. That's what Jesus is offering you. Freedom from the captor that is sin. You say, man, I, I, it's hard. I love Jesus, but I just don't love organized religion. Don't you see what Jesus has done? He's taken religion and turned it on its head. It's not this constant, like, trying to work my way to get God's approval, that exhausting spiritual chores. He says, he flips it on its head and says, God accepts you first and then frees you and empowers you to follow after him. You say, man, I I would become a follower of Jesus, but man, I've just been burned by too many Christ followers. But maybe your engagement in the lenses through which you viewed those people is through a religion lens and not a gospel lens. Because if you're expecting them to say, God, you've heard Christians say, God loves me, and Jesus loves me, and he saved me, but then you're like, but why do you act like that towards other people? It would seem like if you really believe God loves you, then wouldn't you have your life cleaned up first? No, see, here's, it's backwards. See, here's what we believe as Christians. Man, I know that there's brokenness in my life. But that's the amazing miracle of the message of the gospel is that God loves me while I'm in my brokenness and he's pulling me out of my brokenness. And he wants to do that for you too. Simple challenge today from this text. As we look at just the simple logic, we have been, our our sin has been buried with Jesus and you've raised to walk in a brand new life. So Christian, is there a sin that you're struggling with and you keep falling into? And maybe you keep falling into it because somehow you feel like it's your friend? You feel like it's giving you life and it's duped you into trusting it? Cut those chains and walk out of that cell and say, God, what am I thinking? Only you give me life. Give me the strength to walk out of this cell. Repent today. Make a U-turn and say, I'm done with God's help and his grace. Draw the line in the sand today. Christ followers, today the day you said, look, I've been following after Jesus, but I've never been actually baptized since I put my faith in Jesus. Maybe it was something that your parents had done for you when you were a child, but you say it was never actually my decision to to demonstrate publicly my faith in Jesus. Then can I just challenge you? Today is the day. Today is the day to be baptized. After this service today, you say, well, man, I'm not ready. I didn't bring clothes. We've got everything you need. We've got shirts. We've got shorts. We've got a towel. We've got a place for you to change. 
Today is the day. Jesus commanded you to be baptized. Publicly declare to him, join all of the, the Christian heritage and that came before us that said, I am publicly declaring externally what happened to my soul, that my old life was buried with Jesus and I'm raised to walk in a brand new life. Today is the day you can be baptized so you will always remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. But lastly, if you're here, you say, look, I, I don't have everything, I don't understand everything, but I want to be saved. I want that free gift. I want to just simply accept that gift. I want to be saved from my sin. I, don't, I, I want to be accepted and loved by God. I want to know that I'm going to spend eternity in heaven when I die. I, I, I don't have it all figured out, but just can I just take that one step today? Just wherever you're at, whatever confusion you have, whatever your past is, whatever's not yet worked out in your brain, you can in faith take that step today and just say, God, here, here I am. I just, I give you my life. I surrender my life. I just want to take that step and receive that free gift of salvation. You say, man, isn't there some things I got to clean up in my life first? No, it's today. You don't get cleaned up first. You just run to the waterfall and you just jump in. You just say, God, here I am. Just take me. I surrender. I receive that free gift of salvation. Would you put your faith in Jesus today? Maybe today is that day for you. Let's make this moment that moment of decision. Would you bow your heads with me? Maybe if you're joining us online, would you just take a quiet moment between you and God? Christian, if you're here and you say, look, I, I'm still in these chains of this sin in my life. Today is the day of repentance. Take it before God and say, God, I'm going to call it what it is. It's sin. It's destroying me. I'm taking off the chains and I'm leaving it behind, but you're going to have to give me strength. And you're going to have to give me Grace. Draw that line of repentance today. Christian, is today the day for you to be baptized? Surrender and submit to him and say, Jesus, just like you modeled, today I'm going to take that step. But you might be here saying, look, I, I don't have it all worked out. I still have questions. I still have regrets and guilt and shame. And I have all this swirl, but I just want to find salvation today. Can I find it today? The answer is yes. Jesus accepts you just how you are. So if today is the salvation, uh, is your day of salvation, the day that your eternity is changed, then I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer of surrender to God in a quiet moment just between you and God right here, right now. Let's change the course of your eternity because of what Jesus did for you. So in the quietness of your own, hearts, may, your own heart, make these words your words to God. Say this, say, God, thank you for loving me. Even though you know that I'm sinful, thank you for accepting me just how I am. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. 
paying for my sins, offering me forgiveness. I believe you rose again from the dead. And I believe I will spend eternity in heaven with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.